Hello and welcome to the Spectator Books podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and I'm very pleased indeed this week to be joined by Richard Flanagan, the author of the Man Booker Prize winning The Narrow Road to the Deep North in 2014, and before that, Gould's Book of Fish and The Unknown Terrorist and many others. And he returns with his first novel since The Booker, which is called First Person. Richard, welcome. Lovely to be here, Sam. Now, it's been, it's been three years. I suppose I should just ask to start with, have you done what I remember talking to Jan Martel a couple of years after he won with Life of Pi, and he said he had to spend basically two years of his life got swallowed touring Life of Pi around the world, and the, the sort of booker after effect. Well, it is like trying to surf a mudslide and not fall off and, you know, drown in the torrent underneath. I guess I was older when I won it. I'd had some... Um, good luck and I'd had a bad luck in my writing life and I saw this as you know another moment of or a moment of exceptional good luck and I was grateful for it but above all it it just meant I could go back to my table and finish the book I'd started just before the booker which is this one first person. Are you already into it? Yeah yeah and I I was probably saved from the excesses of the booker by uh, personal occurrence because my mother passed away about two weeks after I won it. So that was a, a strangely sobering thing and, you know, it's unexceptional. It happens to, to us all, but you hardly feel like hitting the festival circuit after that and I preferred to stay at home. So um, in a strange way, it probably saved me. Well, let's talk about this book a bit. I mean, you know, The Narrow Road to the Deep North was a kind of historical novel and love story. This is much more like a sort of, I don't know, metafictional kind of psychological thriller. Well, is it, Sam? <laughs> well, I was trying to think of a label for it. Yeah. <laughs> that was sort of what I arrived yeah. at. Yeah. But tell us a bit about the setup. It's a sort of penniless writer or failing writer who becomes the ghostwriter for a great con man, isn't it? Yeah, he's rung up and asked to ghostwrite the con man's memoir in six weeks and he'll be paid $10,000 for it. And he's a man who feels he's morally and intellectually superior by the fact of having defined himself as an artist and a writer to to this lowly criminal. But over the course of the writing of it, he sort of teeters on this abyss and he finds the abyss increasingly more attractive. And I, I suppose he's undone by his arrogance until in the end he becomes the abyss himself. I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of stuff stuff in about writing and starting out writing, and this this idea, this guy, your hero, Kiff, is sort of sustained by the, you know, he says he thinks his wife, he hopes his wife loves him for his talent, and that's the only thing he thinks makes him exceptional. But he's got no evidence at all of his talent. Do you think that's a kind of typical way that writers start out? I mean, was it your experience? Well, I think you know, writers are probably necessarily prone to absurd delusions and vanities, and uh, the problem is no one knows if the evidence will weigh in for them or against them till they've written a book. Kiff, it turns out, his great talent in life is for a certain sort of second-class mediocrity that will later guarantee him a stellar career in reality television. <laughs> a novel should be, I think, about many things, and, and in a sense they're a cracked diary of your soul for the years you write them. And one of the many things that I wanted to write about was the act of writing and and within that a defence of writing and of the novel form itself which is under attack in this age where it's constantly there's that weary axiom that that seems to be endlessly repeated that realities outstrip fiction and this is a 
particularly noxious refrain in a North American letters where they claim the only literature that now has validity is a literature rooted in demonstrable experience and it's led to this ideology of the literary memoir and and there have been some very fine ones written and I, I have no objection to that but I don't like when things become set up as a dogma that we all have to live under and there's several problems I think with this notion of literary memoir. The first is that um, I think it traps people in one identity and the idea of one identity and really we go to literature to discover we're not one but the possibility of many. I mean the great strength of the novel is it reminds us we're not alone, that there are many other possibilities, human possibilities for us, far worse, far more wicked and far better and so on. And I think also that the novel at its best embodies certain truths about human beings. And in this age where lies have become substituted for truth, it seemed to me that the novel was a good form to, to use to ask some of the necessary questions about the age. Well, there's quite a, there's quite a kind of riddling back and forth. I mean, you say, you know, it's a defence of writing, it's a defence of the novel form. But, you know, you do have a very, very magnetic kind of devil's advocate who's this character, Heidel, Ziggy Heidel, who's the, the con man who's been ghostwriting. You know, you've got this sort of peculiar, almost a sort of parallel or shadow self in that Kiff's the novelist writing, trying to write non-fiction, and he's got this con man who seems to be much more... Adept at stories. Exactly. That, yeah. that... Well, I, I think really the question of the age is what stories will we choose to believe in? And we can have stories as grand lies and they're pernicious and poisonous to us both individually and as people, as communities and societies. Or we can have the liberating stories that you find in fiction, which at their best are transcendent. If we are to divine some answers to the horrors of things from Grenfell to Aleppo to a, to a child in a suburb nearby finding meaning in an ISIS snuff video, I think a form like the novel seems a good place to start. And it, it interests me that as the other forms of debate and discussion have been closing down, whether it's politics or media or the, the early promise of the internet that's darkened into something far more sinister, the novel re-emerges as something more important and um, more vital than it has been for a long time in consequence. Did you find Heidel, you know, and that's the classic line about Milton being of the devil's part and not knowing it, that, you know, there's a gravitational attraction to this portrait of a kind of monster. I mean, he's described as sort of a funhouse mirror by yeah. Kiff's friend. And I thought, I thought in the book there was a kind of trace of that sort of heart of darkness, portrait of San Cristobal of A.H., maybe Julian Bonds as the porcupine, you know, that kind of the magnetic monster. Did you find him well, sucking I, the oxygen I, I, out of the room? I think um, our age proves the deep and abiding attraction of monstrosity and that perhaps one of our dilemmas is that since the collapse of communism, we believe that we only had to understand ourselves as material beings. But people do have spiritual a spiritual aspect to them and that there needs to be some recognition of that. And, and the people who seem to acknowledge it are the monsters. ISIS offer a sort of spiritual hope to young people. I, I think 
what gets lost about the wickedness of groups like ISIS is that the way they appeal, they offer people a high moral purpose, you know, and and the more ludicrous the offer on the table that if you actually kill yourself and murder however many others in the process, that only makes it more attractive. And I think as a novelist, uh, I'm intrigued by the way people want to believe in stories, you know, that, that and they want to believe in wicked stories. If they're yes, not he's a little enough and, to make very much up, you know, people did it for him. Yeah, well, I, I think I say that, that not his least gift as a con man was that he rarely lied. I mean, con men are attractive to a writer because they're a human riddle. And so they're great for asking the questions for which no one has the answers, but which we need to think about more. There's also, I mean, I should, I should say, it's a, the way we've discussed it so far makes the book sound quite solemn, but it's absolutely shot through with dark humour. Oh, I'm glad you said that, Sam. I, mean, I thought it had some good lines, you know, like, I'm not a proud man, but I, I'd hoped it was funny, you know. I think humour's one of the great defences we have of our own humanity. And when it's absent, it's like, thing to me... Literature's not fully human. Yeah. I mean, actually, one of the... Humour does seem to have a kind of pivotal role in the book's philosophical setup as well, because you have, you know, there's a lot of Nietzsche which kind of feeds into what you've described, you know, this idea that actually what if there isn't a kind of moral order? But one of your characters says, you know, I think Nietzsche was simply the funniest man alive, and, you know, the reason he went mad and started talking to horses is because nobody realised it. He was just a sort of stand-up comic. Well, it did occur to me years ago reading Nietzsche that... In our age, his particular take on the world probably would have led him into being a stand-up comic. But in 19th century Germany, that sort of line of thought led him into the philosophy faculty. It is... And he was German, you know. I mean, there's also an invented German philosopher in it called Thomas Tebbe. And, yes. uh, the great German installationist. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I... I like how people, perhaps it's one more perverse consequence of Twitter, but, but everyone's searching for aphorisms, which are ultimately the emptiest form of literature, you know, because it's. I wanted to have this character who spouts things that seem wise until you turn the page and you think that's actually completely ludicrous, you know? Yes, and I mean, I, I, was, I did find myself Googling Tebby, you know, because <laughs> I, I expect a lot of people will because you've got Heidel constantly saying, you know, well, as Thomas Tebby says, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I had a lot of fun with that. Obviously, because the book's so much about the kind of craft of writing, you know, it's a nosy and boring question, but you've got, you know, Kiff, at one point he starts doing what I think many people who've got to write a book to a deadline do, which is going up you know, this many weeks, this many days, this many thousand words. And he's he's used to working it on a good day, maybe 300 or 500 words on his novel, and he's got to do 3,571 words a day to get this book finished. I mean, are you a fast writer? Do, are you someone who's of the 300-word-a-day No, I'm dreadfully type? slow. Uh, yeah, no, I'm the 300-word-a-day, and uh, most of them I'll throw out in the afternoon. And uh, No, Flaubert syndrome. It is the, the Flaubert syndrome, and, and really it, it's absurd because... Well, Flaubert, in in the middle of Madame Bovary, he suddenly steps outside of the novel and he acknowledges the complete folly of his own approach. And no one ever has picked up on this, but he suddenly says, why is it that none of us can ever express the exact measure of all our thoughts and needs and sorrows and loves and all human speech is a cracked kettle upon which we tap crude rhythms for bears to dance to when all the time we long to move the stars to pity? 
And I think that's the paradox of being a writer, that you search and you think that if you just work hard enough, you'll find the exact phrase. But the truth is you're always tapping crude rhythms for bears to dance to. Whitman said, the words of my book, nothing, the drift of them, everything. I think that's truer. And, and Borges talks about how, in the end, perhaps the thing most irrelevant to a writer's achievement is style. And the great books survive the fires of translation and the, the perils of the years and century, because not because they have style, which slowly dissolves as language and the world alters, but a soul. Well, Flaubert actually makes the same point in his letters. He writes, I think it's to George Sand at one point, and he's, he's furious. He says, why is it that all the great writers achieved their effects in spite of an absence of style? Right. Does that make it easier to be unselfconscious when writing or harder? I mean, if you're not thinking style, because obviously style is all you have to, to get those effects on the page. I tried to, you know, when I started writing, I, I had the arrogance of thinking I knew something about writing, and I, at least now, having written several books, I, I realise I know nothing about it. I do trust more and more in story and the mystery of story, and I, I think that the more you go with the story you're inventing and allow fresh invention, the more you escape the prison of your own character, opinions, politics, and so on, and you you discover all the things that you're not. And that's really what literature is. It's the many things we don't understand about ourselves and which, which we're not, and that's what we share with other people. Does that mean you jump in and you don't quite know where you're going? I mean, do you start from a situation like, you know, you've like, got a ghostwriter, I have a sort of very, very evanescent person he's trying to pin down and then just see where it takes you? Uh, I do, yeah, yeah. I think if you know what you're writing, you're not writing anything worth reading. And I've found that when you do that, you trust the reader. The, the more you tell the reader, the duller the book becomes. The, the less you tell the reader, the more it demands of the reader they create the novel. And, and great books are the ones which the reader invents and they find more and more in it because it's open to their invention. But the the novels, I, I find North American novels infinitely dreary in this regard because they want to tell you everything about a character. You know, there's always well, that dreadful... Are you thinking of the sort of back, the maximalist thing? Yeah, there's the, there's the turgid backstory for three chapters, there's the end, endless psychological insight and so on and, and so forth. But really... You know, we could live with another human being for 60 years and at the end stand over their grave and wonder if we ever knew them at all. And in fact, you could look in the mirror and wonder who you are yourself at a certain point. And um... <laughs> that's to do. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, since you you're raising geographical literatures, I wanted to ask a bit about the Australianness or otherwise this book. I mean, you use an epigraph in it which is a sort of, I mean, this 19th century report on transportation to Australia, and it has this, you know, what sort of books do they have there? Novels, you know, much inferior to London bookshops. Why did you use that epigraph? Well, it made me laugh for a start. Uh, yeah, it's from the British Parliamentary Papers, 1835, and it's a select committee into the transportation of convicts, and it's sort of verged off the page into this discussion about bookshops. And I love the innate snobbery of it. They, because the Australians are all convicts or, or criminals, their tastes are so vulgar that they only read novels. And worse than that, 
they love Newgate calendars, you know, the, the confessions of criminals. And, yeah. and this book is the confession of a criminal, except it's not the criminal you think it is at the start of the book. Well, no spoilers. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you do have Heidel at one point, he says his great secret was to kind of become a sort of Australian everyman, you know, the sort of bloke in the back row of the corporate photograph. I mean, are you trying to make him stand for something particularly native in your country? I wasn't particularly, but, but Australia is... I think Australia is much more Asian than Europeans realise, but certainly than Australians realise, because they have these myths of heroic individuals. But it's a very conformist society, and within that, the people who succeed are the ones who melt into the background and perform their good deeds or their, their wicked deeds insidiously. And they're always there's a certain type of mediocrity who does particularly well in my country. What does it signify that your protagonist and his great mate Ray, who is, you know, we should say Heidel's kind of minder, come consigliere, come, I don't know, creature. I mean, he's slightly like the character in Heart of Darkness, you know, the guy who runs around Kurtz, that they're Tasmanian rather than mainland Australian. I've always liked literature that reminds you that place is never the place you thought it was and even for Australians there's a myth that there's one country and I just happened to come from you know this full stop at the end of a continent this tiny island it allows you to to look at Australia with Australians but entirely differently Um, so it's just a convenient device for for turning the telescope round the opposite direction and seeing everything upside down and back to front Tasmania's unknown to Australians but it's even more unknown to Tasmanians but it is a it is a different country it is a different country and it's a you know a messed up and strange place and it it doesn't have the illusions that nations have you know you said you think there's a distinctively North American literature do you see yourself as part of a, a particularly Australian literary kind of gang or movement I mean is there distinctively Australian literature and what is is it that's distinct about it I'd have no idea, Sam. I mean, that's for people like you. I mean, I, I remember my first novel, Death of a River Guide, came out and the leading broadsheet in Australia, the Sydney Morning Herald, refused to review it, saying it didn't fit into any recognisable school of Australian literature, which was really the, the sweetest compliment I ever got. And, uh, it's a very odd reason to re- <laughs> refuse to review something, isn't it? You well, said it it's a very conformist yeah. society. But. So, so I, I think national literatures are an idea that arose here in Europe last century and and they're a very odd idea and it's a very odd and sort of decaying conceit and it still makes a bit of sense here but there's in Australia I think there are a lot of very good people who live in Australia and write very good books but I think our literature is very recent it started arising in the 1970s and I don't think it'll ever be a national literature in the way it's understood in Europe it will be other things, but I don't think it'll really shape itself into the form of the the project of the nation, you know. Mm. I, I think those times are past. I mean, Les Murray was quite keen on that. I mean, there's a line he's got somewhere saying about, you know, sort of about the Commonwealth and the remains of the British Empire, that a rotten, rotten tree lives only in its rind, <laughs> by which I think he's saying, you know, the, the outside edges are actually where the action is. Well, that's a different point, isn't it? I mean, literature, in one sense, is always the the vengeance of the edges on the centre, isn't it? I mean, whether it's Flaubert in Normandy 
writing to Maxine de Comp that uh, when Maxine de Comp says come to Paris when Flaubert's struggling with Madame Bovary and he's you, you'll be greeted with garlands and the breath of life and he said you'll get, Flaubert replies your garlands are smeared with shit and <laughs> do you think hearts rise and sink no less in Rouen to Joyce in Trieste writing about Dublin which was the asshole of Europe and to Faulkner in Mississippi which to this day is um, an embarrassment to America to Marquez in Mexico City writing about a tiny town no one knew in a country no one had ever heard of to, to Bolaño and Blaine's uh, uh, on and on that it's a, it's an unusual art form because most other art forms have to go to the centres of power where many truths are shrouded by power and wealth but literature has the strength that it can renew itself from the edges where perhaps those shrouds aren't as apparent it doesn't mean that it can't be written in the centres, but it allows for it to have those strengths from the edges as well. Can I ask if you're, if, you know, you're, you're sort of arguing against the idea, really, of national literature as being an important concept. Did, did you support the idea that, you know, as a former winner, the Booker should have gone international? Because it's caused a lot of, a lot of angst here that when they said, you know, US writers will be eligible. Do you think that that was a good thing, or do you not have a view on it? Well, I mean. My predominant view is really the only attitude I can have towards the Booker is one of gratitude. Uh, I won it in the first year when it had been opened up to the Americans. I understand that there is a, a sound argument for having an English language prize, but I, if I was an English writer, I think I'd, I'd be furious. But there's several aspects to this which haven't been discussed. The first is... There's too much attention given to prizes, and particularly the Booker. And, and you would know as well as I, Sam, that there's all this space taken up by the Booker and the Booker winner. And I'm only sitting here because I've had that extraordinary good fortune to have won it. No, you're, but, but, you're not only sitting here because you've had the good fortune to win the Booker. But, but, but there, there are all these other extraordinary writers and extraordinary books which struggle to get sales of more than one or two thousand to get any attention. And it's almost if our prize culture has become like the great strange statues that the Rapa Nui erected over themselves on <laughs> Easter Island as they were descending into famine and war and cannibalism. You know, you sometimes wonder if they're not grand symbols of spectacular decline and chaos. Well, you've got some very good material at the beginning of the book about the decline of <laughs> this, this kind of once mighty publishing empire that's reduced to half a floor, and, you know. Oh, publishing. But th th there's one more thing I'd say too, and that is uh, I grew up in a culture which was still a colony of the mind. As I was saying, Australian literature, whatever that is, is younger than I am. It starts really in the late 60s. It's enormously new, and its first great struggle was to shake off what was termed in Australia the cultural cringe, this sense that an Englishman or an American or a European would always write superior works because their experience was a real experience in some way, some fundamental sense our experience wasn't. And that was our first great struggle, just to understand that we weren't more, but we, we were not less. And that's an enormous mental, creative and aesthetic task What's strange to me is that now in Britain there seems to be, and Britain has many extraordinary writers, but there's a sense of almost deference to American letters. And to me, North American letters is not what it was 50 years ago. I mean, I feel that there's some very good American writers and some of them are dear friends of mine, but 
it is in decline and it's it's not something to be feared or, or seen to be superior. American writers... I know of no country where America, American writers have the aura, not even America, that they seem to possess here. It's a strange thing. They come freighted with this great aura. And you have to wonder... It's our version of the cultural cringe. <laughs> well, you wonder, don't you? And I remember when it was first announced about the booker going international and Michiko Kakatani said the, the English shouldn't fear because they had probably more great writers than the Americans. So I don't really have an opinion. I understand why people are furious and want to change back, but I also think people shouldn't feel that the Americans are going to dominate forever because perhaps... Well, they haven't the yet. Pro- <laughs> no, no, yeah. What are you doing now? Have you got another one underway? I mean, are you one of those people who starts the new book once uh, before the next one's published? Uh, well, no, no, I haven't got one, and but I have several things I'm thinking about. I just want to read a lot, actually, in the next few months. I, I haven't read much this year, and I've got piles of books. And I mean, the thing I enjoyed most about writing is it's made me a better reader, and I, I, that's really all I want to do is go back and um, sit down and read some books. Well, I wish you well of it, Richard Flanagan. Thank you very much. First person is available in all good bookshops, eminently. Thank you, Sam. <laughs>